Well, welcome. Uh, people will still be coming in, I'm sure. Uh, it was a shorter uh, donut break today than, than, than yesterday, um, but uh, welcome. Again, my name is Peter Payne. Uh, I'm not on staff with Mount Hermon, but I regularly do seminars for the family camps. My wife and I live up here near, the, near Ponderosa Lodge. If you go to Pancake uh, uh, Ridge for breakfast, uh, we're just a little bit down from uh, Ridgeway, where you take, uh, we're on Pine, up towards the top of Pine, but close enough that when the camps are going on at Ponderosa, we can hear the kids uh, having fun and making noises and playing at the pool and all that kind of stuff. And so that's a lot of fun. <clears throat> if you're new to Mount Hermon, you're, dis you're probably discovering why wow, this is a great place. And there are a lot of people who come and come, and come again and come again and sort of becomes an ongoing thing. In fact, I know some people who, who came bringing their kids uh, and then they come later come bringing their grandkids. Uh, it's just a, a wonderful opportunity. Uh, my, myself and a number of family members are actually in, in, reg registered this week. So I was at the talk this morning. I very much appreciate the talk on humility. Uh, it's, uh, uh, humility is not one of my great strengths. I'm pretty opinionated about things and sometimes say things more strongly than I should. Uh, a couple, a couple of things yesterday I said more strongly than I should have said, so I apologize for, for, uh, for that. But uh, it's, it's helpful to be reminded that pride actually shuts us off from the love of God and shuts us off from being able to be loved by other people. Whereas if we're authentic and share our struggles and our problems, that, uh, that opens our relationship with God as well as opening our relationship with others. So that's a little about myself. Uh, I'm the managing director of an organization called the Institute for Credible Christianity. One of the things we do is we go to Europe every year and serve Christian student movements there, uh, principally through the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. If you're not familiar with that, and that's an international association of Christian student movements around the world. There are about 150 countries. So most countries in the world have an IS, an IFES group in it. University Christian Fellowship here is the USA affiliate with the uh, IFES. So it's by invitation from IFES student groups in Europe that we go. This last year, we managed to get a five-week trip in. In January, it didn't look like it would work out. Things began to improve in February. So we just really love that. This last time, it was principally in uh, Lithuania, or in Switzerland, week and a half, in Lithuania, Germany, and the Netherlands. If you're interested, there's a report that we wrote up about, uh, about some other things, but mostly about our, our trip to Europe this last year. Plus, there's a clipboard back there. Uh, Tom, you want to start passing the clipboard around. If you didn't sign up yesterday, uh, even if you did sign up, I'm going to, for you, those of you who signed up today, if you didn't sign up yesterday, I'll send you both the PowerPoint from today and from yesterday, so added bonus. So you put your name and your email address down there. Uh, at the end of it, uh, I mentioned that I'm doing a series of essays uh, critiquing a book by an atheist, Bart Ehrman, who used to be a Christian and is one of the most influential atheists out there. He has six books on the New York Times bestseller list all attacking the Christian faith. So I decided to take one of his books called Jesus Before the Gospels, and uh, do a critique of the arguments that he gives as a series of blogs. So uh, once I get a couple more done, I'll start putting them up on the web. And if you mark why that you'd like to get that, uh, then I'll send it out and let you, you can let me know if you'd like to be, re be receiving the, the blogs. So anyway, that, that's about that. 
Uh, again, it's a great to be here and I, I, I love what I do. The topic for today is a topic that is a wonderful bridge for people who aren't Christians, but to build an interest in the Christian faith. One thing that most non-Christians don't realize is what I would call secular Western ethics. Basically, is Christian ethics with a few changes. Uh, one major difference is that Christian ethics starts off with a relationship with God, loving God, and then loving others as an overflow of that. But secular Western ethics basically wipes out the God part of it, but basically says we're to love others as we love ourselves. And when people realize that that actually is not a worldwide phenomenon, that most cultures don't have that kind of a love your neighbor as yourself, treating people with great, as, as being of great worth, uh, they should come to realize that they were deeply indebted in Western culture by Judeo-Christian ethics. The question becomes, can you keep Judeo-Christian ethics if you knocked away the latter out of how you got there? If you take away the Christian faith, can you still get there? That'll come up uh, later in the talk. But it's a great bridge for people who want to, who very strongly believe in ethical things, to realize that that really comes from the Christian faith to a large extent, and to realize that if they don't believe in God, it's very difficult to defend the belief that this is actually right. Not simply right by consensus, a majority of us think it, but it's right even before people thought it was right. <laughs> that right and wrong is something which is independent of what we think, and it's very difficult to defend that. If you ask the question, does ethics need God? If the question is, does a person need to believe in God to be basically kind, honest, relatively generous, etc.? The answer is no. There are quite a few atheists out there who are actually more ethical, more following sort of Christian ethics than a lot of Christians are. So can a person be ethical and not be a Christian? Obviously they can. So in that sense, ethics does not need God. But if the question, does ethics need a foundation? I'd say the answer to that is definitely yes. I was in a debate with an ethics professor in the far southern part of, uh, of, of, of Germany, a city called Constance, which is on the Swiss border. And it was on the topic, does ethics need a foundation in God? And interestingly enough, he and I both agreed that ethics does need a foundation. And both of us agreed that from a secular atheistic perspective, it's not all that easy to see how you develop an adequate foundation for God. Uh, the various attempts the atheists have given have not been fully persuasive to him, but it was hopeful that from an atheist perspective, you could have a foundation for belief in God. Uh, whereas from my perspective, yes, ethics needs a foundation in God, but actually needs more than what an atheist is able to provide. In that debate, by the way, even though he He's still struggling with how to develop a foundation for ethics from an atheist perspective. He was convinced that the Christian faith doesn't have a foundation for, uh, for an ethics for God. And I'll come to one of his arguments a little bit later on. When you ask, does ethics need a foundation, you're basically asking the why question. You might believe, say, this is right or that's wrong. Why? What is it that lies behind it that makes it right, that makes it wrong? Is it simply my culture believes this? It's something that was sort of inculcated into me as a value. Uh, why should I say it's right and what's wrong? And you look at that level of norms, what norms are actually right and wrong, sort of the content of ethics. You can ask the question about more basic moral ethical values. You know, why do we hold these things? 
and typically for values there are beliefs that lie beneath that. Give an example, uh, there's the norm, the rule that you're supposed to obey the speed limit. Well, why should I obey the speed limit? Well, if you recognize that if I drive too fast, I might actually endanger other people, and other people's lives are important. Well, okay, why is it other people's lives matter? Well, it's because people are important. People, other people's lives are important. Human lives are important. Well, where does that belief come from? And how does one uh, substantiate that? But it's, it's the case that you need to have, for norms that you have, you need to have values that undergird those. But it's also important to have beliefs which undergird those. Even if, you're, even if a value has been well inculcated into you, if you don't have beliefs underneath it, it's much more problematic as to whether you'll stick with it. So for instance, give the following example. Suppose you have a 19-year-old uh, boy, <coughs> who, a man, who uh, is, grew, grew a Christian family and uh, absorbed the value that you ought to wait until you get married before you have sex. And he might sort of think, that's what I'm going to do. The problem is, he's likely to come at some point in a relationship with a young woman that he is greatly attracted to. She's not a Christian either. And they both have the sexual drive, and shall we have sex together? Now, our brain is quite good at rationalizing what you want. And in that situation, there's quite a pretty clear, there's a pretty strong want on both sides. Uh, and the, 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 the person is apt to say, okay, <clears throat> well, I'm going to do it even if they know some of the arguments against it, if they don't have beliefs that say you, you clearly should wait, you shouldn't do that. Without those beliefs, even if you had that value ingrained into you, it's easy for that value to slip and to get eroded. So beliefs undergirding your moral values are very important. I also should say at this point, I'm using the terms ethical and moral interchangeably. So sometimes make, people make a distinction that moral values are more sort of personal values and ethical values are more social values. Um, but I'm just using them interchangeably, so I'll, I'll do that as the, as the slides go on. Does that foundation need to be God? Now, this takes a lot more arguing, but I'm going to say arguably yes. Uh, so I'm not going to be dogmatic and say that it's absolutely impossible for an atheist to give some sort of foundation for it. Uh, but it's very difficult, and arguably really, one really does need God for it. And when one looks at Western secular ethics, as I said before, God, belief in God, and the biblical statements, the biblical teaching undergirds that. Uh, so the question is, can you give a foundation for God, I mean, for ethics without, uh, without God? Back in 2012, my wife was on the internet, and CNN saw this, uh, this, this internet article entitled, Prominent Atheist Blogger Becomes Catholic. So I sort of curious and went to look at it. And it's about a woman named Leah Labresco, who is quite well known within the atheist community as an atheist blogger on an atheist blog site. And her last blog and then this atheist blog site was basically telling her, her, her internet audience <clears throat> that she was no longer an atheist, that she was she'd become a Christian and she was going to join the, the Catholic Church. Well, interestingly enough, the CNN report quotes her as saying, I believe that the moral law wasn't just a platonic truth, abstract and distant, she wrote on her post announcing her conversion. Quote, it turns out I actually believed it was some kind of person, as well as truth. And there was one religion that seemed like the most promising way to reach back to that living truth. So here's an example of a person who's a staunch atheist, but nonetheless she had strong moral convictions, and when she saw the tension between the two of those, she decided, I better look more carefully in the theism. 
I got together with a Catholic priest and began to think more about the Christian faith and decided to become a Christian. So this can actually be a strong motivator for people to, to, to hope that, that naturalism, materialism is false, and to seriously look at the Christian faith to see if that might be the right answer. She mentioned one point there, she says that it's not just an abstract sort of moral written on the cosmos somehow, but it was rooted in a person. And so I'm going to take a little digression here and say when you talk about non-theistic religions and the ethics that they have, typically ethics from their perspective, it's rooted in the idea of there being a moral order out there in the world. It's not a person, but there's a moral order. And if you act in accordance with that moral order, your life will flourish. It'll go better for you. There'll be harmony. If you don't act in accordance with this moral order, there will be conflict. There will be chaos. There will be disharmony. Note, from their perspective, they do have a belief which puts it independent of what people think. So it's not a matter of what cultures think because they believe there's a moral order out there which nonetheless, which, which gives you the, the, the moral right and wrong. The problems with that is that nature does not seem to be wholly good. There are a lot of things in the natural world which seem very nice and good, but there are other things which don't. There was uh, one time I, I went, I was invited to, uh, well, a friend sent me a brochure for an atheist conference uh, called the Debater's Toolbox, and it was basically a conference to help train atheists to debate Christians. So I sent him my registration and let them know I was a Christian. At the end of this, this brochure, they were going to do a debate with a Christian the last uh, evening, full evening of the, of the conference, and it said, victim to be announced. <laughs> so when I sent him my registration, I said, if you don't have the victim yet, I'd be, I'd be willing to be the victim. And they said, no, we have someone, but uh, that, that's fine. But they also that morning had a series, they had uh, some debates where people who were attending could put their name in the hat, and if the name was drawn, they could be in sort of an abbreviated debate where they would play the role of the atheist and one of their seasoned debaters would play the role of a Christian. So I said, well, it doesn't have to be a mock debate. I could actually I could play the role of the Christian and the atheist debater could play the role of the atheist. I said, no, but you register for the conference. So if you want to play the role of the atheist, you could do that. <laughs> so I put my name in the hat and my name was one of the three names which were called. So the person introducing said, this should be interesting. We have an atheist pretending to be a Christian and a Christian pretending to be an atheist. Afterwards, that person came up to me and said, you did such a good job. I don't understand why you're a Christian. <laughs> so when, and, and the part of what made me think about that was there was a woman there who was an actress uh, on Saturday Night Live, uh, and she had grown up Catholic, lost her faith, but still believed that there basically is a goodness in the world. Uh, but she was on a trip to the Galapagos Islands, and uh, the tour guide uh, was, uh, uh, was pointing out these blue-legged seabirds, blue-footed uh, uh, weeby or something like that. Uh, but anyway, she said the interesting thing about these birds is the mother bird will typically lay three eggs. One egg will hatch a little before the other two, and as the second and third eggs hatch, the first chick will peck the brains out of the second and the third. All right. And she said, hmm, maybe nature isn't so good after all. Well, from an evolutionary standpoint, that makes perfectly good sense. But it does point out that nature seems to be blind with respect to moral principles, just whatever, whatever enables a species to survive, survives, regardless of what kind of behavior it involves. 
Also, I want to mention that natural consequences and human nature do motivate a degree of kindness, honesty, etc., but not kindness, etc., towards everyone. So psychologists will tell you, if you're basically a kind person, you're probably going to be happier than a person who is kind of mean-spirited, right? People who are basically kind are happier than people who aren't kind. So if you're an atheist, well, there's motivation to be basically kind. But being ethical is not just a matter of being basically kind to some people. Rather, it's a matter of treating other people with kindness that you're not naturally inclined to be nice to. So when you ask the question, why should I be kind towards someone I think is a jerk? You know, well, from a secular standpoint, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so sometimes comparing Christian ethics and forgiveness from a Christian perspective as forgiveness from a, an atheist perspective, from the atheist perspective, there's no reason why you should forgive somebody you think's a jerk, but you don't want to let that bother you. So you need to get over it. You don't need to forgive the person, you just need to get over it. If you still hold bitterness within yourself, then you're the victim, <laughs> you're the sufferer rather than the other person, but just get over it. But from a Christian standpoint, we're not just told to get over uh, people who have harmed us or done things against us. We're actually told to forgive them. A much more challenging uh, 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 thing to do. People who do not care much for the welfare of others often seem to prosper. I mean, suppose you have a person who is nice towards family members, has some good friendships, but basically doesn't care about other people, lives for himself, just makes money, uh, and is, is not a, a moral person in the broader sense. But those kind of people oftentimes seem to prosper quite well. In fact, if you're familiar with the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, in Habakkuk, Habakkuk is saying, God, the, the righteous are downtrodden and suppressed, and the, the, the wicked prosper. What's going on, God? And so there's this dialogue, there's this, this interaction between Habakkuk and God. But if there's a moral order, which is supposed to make wicked people not flourish and, and people who abide by it to flourish, why is it that it seems as though people who aren't very moral seem to do quite well? And sometimes people who are quite moral seem to do quite poorly. So that sort of goes against this idea that simply being a moral order out there. Also, knowing what is right and wrong uh, involves weighing consequences. You ever saw the first Star Wars movie, Luke Skywalker is trying to destroy this Death Star, which is designed so it can, it can create a huge death ray, which will, which will blow up planets, destroy planets. And Luke Skywalker is flying his, his, his spacecraft vehicle and down through this, 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 this crystal crack in the, in, the, in, the, in the Death Star, and he's being shot at, and go by your, uh, uh, go with your feelings, Luke. Uh, so he's, he's going with the feeling, may the force be with you, and he's, and he's being guided by the force, so he moves his, 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 his vehicle just in the right kind of way, so the missiles are all missing him. And then he turns down the right spot, goes towards the center of the Death Star, and just the right moment releases the missile, so it goes towards the nuclear reactor, and he spirals up and heads out. Well, the force in Star Wars is supposed to be impersonal. It's not supposed to be a person. But clearly the force is personal in this case. It has to understand what's the consequences of this Death Star is, why the people who made it intended, what the people who made it intended to do with it. It even has to know how, in fact, this machine works, so it's able to guide Luke Skywalker to move the, the control panel, the controls in just the right way. Now, no impersonal force is able to, is to calculate those kind of consequences, but there are a lot of things when it comes to moral decision-making where we have to weigh the consequences. Now, if I do this, what will happen from it? 
And it's not something that's built in the natural world itself. It's rather thinking, okay, what will happen if I do this? Away the consequences. And if you're going with your go with your feelings, Luke, uh, that's not going to tell you what those consequences are. So it's going to be basically blind when it comes to an awful lot of what's included in ethics. The last one is sort of cut off on the screen there, but arguably values are values for someone. Now, Christians differ a lot on this. So a lot of Christian philosophers say when God created the world, he created the world, has the physical structure to have all the organism, but he also created a moral fabric to it. So God created a moral order to the universe as well as creating the physical universe itself. But for me, I ask the question, well, what are values if, there's, if they're not valuable to someone? So imagine a universe that doesn't have God, doesn't have human being, doesn't have any sentient creatures that have any feelings or thoughts about the, the universe. Could such a universe have a, be a universe with values? Well, I just kind of scratch my head. I'm not quite sure what that is. So I'm much more inclined myself personally to think that values are always values in relationship to someone, whether it's to human beings, whether it's to animals, or whether it's to God. And it's really in the relationship of, of the, those people and the, their welfare, which, which determines what is right and what is wrong. And I think non-Christians and Christians basically agree, and the ethics has to do with advancing overall welfare. How you flesh that out and what that means is going to vary a great deal. Do you have to care about everyone's welfare? Or is it the, is it the, the accomplishments of society that matter? How we work out what welfare is is going to vary. But nonetheless, both Christians and non-Christians agree that welfare is important, and I think that God is good, and God is the source of ethics because God cares about our welfare. In fact, I think I'll stick it in here on a slide later on. The objection that the professor gave, or one of his objections to the Christian faith being the ground of ethics, is what's called the Euthyphro Dilemma. There's one of the Socratic dialogues by Plato, is uh, writing about Socrates, and this particular dialogue is called the Euthyphro. And Socrates is going to the, the, uh, the, the court, uh, the leaders of Athens, and being charged with corrupting the youth of Athens. And as he's going towards court, he meets a friend of his named Euthyphro, who's also going towards court. So why are you going to court? He says, I'm going to court to charge my father with murder. So I'm, oh, you're charging your father with murder? Why is that? And he said, well, my, my, my father uh, had a servant and put him in a pit, forgot he was there. And when he got back, the servant had died. Not a clear case of first class, you know, first degree murder. And so Socrates said, well, why, do you, why are you convinced that it's right for you to charge your father with murder? And his response is, well, that's what the gods would agree upon. So Socrates said, well, why do the gods agree upon this? Uh, and he sort of transfer that to sort of monotheism. Does, is, does what God is, what God wills, is, is it right because God wills it? Or does God will it because it's right? So the horns of the dilemma and the Euthyphro dilemma is that if you say it's right because God wills it, then when we say God is good or he's morally good, that's simply guy saying God wills what he wills. If you say God wills it because it's right, then you have to have some standard other, from, other than the fact that simply God wills it to say what it is, that why it is that what God wills is right. And if you have something apart from God, the atheist says, you're in the same position I'm in. <laughs> We're both struggling to try to develop a foundation for what's right and wrong. And for you, it's sort of, what is it, what is it, why is it that God wills what is right? You have to decide what's right. So we're in the same boat. We have the same basic problem. <clears throat> 
Let me say that my response to that is to say there's actually two ways of thinking about human welfare. You can think about general values of things which are good for people and things which are moral values or things which are morally obligatory. So it's, 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 it's a good thing for me as a human being to not eat as much sugar as I'm inclined to eat. I like sweet things, right? Now, is it morally wrong for me to have that donut that I had this morning? Well, no, I don't think it was morally wrong, even though it's not really in my best interest to have that glazed, uh, uh, old-fashioned donut I had this morning. I enjoy, enjoy it very much. But it's not a moral issue. Uh, and I have understanding what, in fact, contributes to human welfare. In fact, there are objective facts about what contributes to human welfare. So sometimes people think, if, in fact, ethics is based on our subjective opinions of what's in our welfare or not, then everything is subjective. But, in fact, human welfare has some objectivity to it. I'll illustrate this by comparing it to, suppose you ask, is there object are there objective facts about what contributes to a dog's welfare? And I contend that there are. So if you own a dog, you should know that petting your dog is in the welfare of your dog. Your dogs will be happier if you pet your dog regularly. If you take your dog for walks, the dog will be happier. If you feed your dog regularly nutritious, good dog food, the dog will be happier. On the other hand, if you take a stick and whack, whack, whack at your dog, that's not in the welfare of your dog. Or if you go off to work and put your dog in a closet, close the door, come back from work afterwards, open up the door, let your dog out. That's not in the welfare of your dog. Objectively speaking, it's not in the welfare of your dog because there are some things which are true, of, true that contribute to the, your dog's welfare and some things which don't. The same thing is true of human beings. If a person doesn't have any relationships of trust, they're not going to be as happy as a person who has good trust relationships. If a person is verbally abused, you're worthless, you're worth nothing, that's not in the welfare of the person. Whereas if the person is congratulated for good things which they do and there's appreciation shown to the person, that does contribute to their welfare. So we have a general notion of what contributes to human welfare. So we start with that and we look at God and we realize God actually cares about human welfare. Not only does he care about the Israelites, but he cares about, cares about other nations as well. And when you see how God has related to us, you realize God cares about us. So we say God is good, it's based on this more basic notion of welfare which we have and realize God is good, God cares about our welfare. Now that doesn't mean that uh, we can sort of know everything about what's right and wrong without coming, listening to God. So when I say God is good, completely good, and when God says things where I kind of scratch my head, well, I'm not so sure about that, why is that? Why would God give this command if I have a basic trust that he's good, then I'm able to trust him even things I don't understand fully? And that happens for us. There are things in Scripture where we say, well, why is it that things have to be that way? But if we have reason to trust God, we can trust that God is fully good. Now, for myself and my own approach to ethics, it's not something that's built into the nature of ethical language in, in English, but for myself, what distinguishes ethical obligation from simply things which are good or bad in general is there are things that God cares about. And there are principles that God gives us, so if there are things which are directly implied from principles God's given to us, then that becomes part of moral right and wrong as well. So from my perspective, ethics is in fact intimately related to accountability with God. Now that's a Christian perspective. The atheists don't have that kind of perspective. And I shouldn't say that, well, you can't have ethics, you don't believe in God, because I think of ethics as involving God. 
So you may think of ethics involving God, but why, is it, why should I have to take that position? Why should I assume that that is what is right? Or even say, if God commands it, why, do, why should I say that what is right is whatever God commands, or God's commands lie behind it? But my way of getting around the objection, the euthyphro dilemma, is to split off what is a general notion of human welfare and, and good and bad from the notion of ethical obligation, what's right and wrong. Uh, so that was a bit of a, a, a digression. Let me come back here now, say a few things about Christian ethics. <clears throat> First of all, in the history of how Christians have thought about ethics and what lies behind ethics, there's been two major streams of thought. One draws upon our Jewish heritage within which righteousness involves right relationship with God and right relationship with God informs right, right relationship with other people. So from an Old Testament, from a Jewish perspective, right and wrong, moral right and wrong, is intimately connected with God and God's will. So that's sometimes called divine command ethics. But there's also a notion which gained a great deal of traction within the Catholic Church and also a lot of Protestants today, to say that ethics is grounded in a more a natural law. And so you oftentimes people say the what's, what's, what's right or wrong about certain sexual behavior, well, there's a natural law about it. If you reflect on it, you realize that this isn't right or that is right. Uh, there's, there's problems with that in that we sometimes don't have the same intuitions of what Scripture teaches us, or things which make sense to me aren't necessarily what God says. And the question becomes, how do I know that what I, how I feel about something is what's right? Do I actually have a reliable intuition where God says we have a conscience and even non-Christians have a conscience? So even non-Christians can have an awareness that there's importance about honesty, about caring for other people. There's sort of principles like that that even non-Christians can, can recognize. But when it comes to lots of other things, uh, th that natural law doesn't, it doesn't help us that much. And you see the controversies that are taking place today, and uh, you ask a person who is homosexual, you know, natural law tells you that it's wrong. Well, homosexual feels right to me. I don't see why you say natural, natural law says that, 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 that it's wrong. But the interesting thing about this, given these two streams of thought, ethical language in Christian cultures do not imply either of them, because they're the, both these possibilities of grounding ethics either in, in, in a natural law or in the will of God. Uh, when we make ethical claims within Christian countries, there's nothing about those claims that dictates either natural law or divine command. So that's the I have on, on, on this next screen. But what they do share in common is that either way, ethical beliefs are independent of what people think. And it's part of the very conventions of what we mean when we make ethical language, so that when you make a moral claim, it has to be independent of what I think, the speaker, or what culture happens to think about. I'll come back to that in just a second. But let me say a couple more things about, uh, about Christian ethics. And when I'm giving a talk to a non-Christian group, it's important for me to include this because it's important for me to try to help them be attracted towards the Christian faith in terms of its view of ethics rather than uh, sort of what their stereotypes. I remember one time having a conversation with a woman who was from uh, 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 Russia and her parents were atheists, and she'd come to believe in God, but hadn't been a Christian yet. She said, why would anybody want to be a Christian? There are so many rules. <laughs> do this, don't do this. You know, uh, 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 why do anybody want to be, be a Christian? And I sort of scratched my head. I thought, she doesn't understand the way I understand it. Well, when you look at what Jesus says about ethics, it's quite clear Jesus is not saying there's a bunch of rules. 
The Pharisees, there's a bunch of rules. Let's see how many we can check off. The more you check off, the, the more righteous you are. And Jesus, no, you have all these list of rules, but if you're ignoring the big ones, the important ones, you're missing the boat. So Jesus at one point was asked, or actually a couple different places, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus basically quotes from the Old Testament and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It's with all your strength in Deuteronomy. Basically, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. And then he adds, a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So really, loving God and loving others is the core of Christian ethics. Uh, and that's, it's around that which, which, which Christian ethics flows. That doesn't mean that you can, you can deduce from those two principles everything that we ought to do or not, ought not to do. After all, we're fallen people and our cultures are fallen. We don't get everything right. So we really do need God's help in being able to see some of the more detailed kind of questions which we have. But nonetheless, it's, 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 it's fundamental that we love God and love others. So Christian ethics is rooted in God and love for him. It flows from this into love for others. And by the way, Christian ethics is quite radically different than ethics, generally speaking, because it doesn't just look at relationships amongst people. It starts with a relationship with God and what God is like and how God relates to us, and that informs and motivates our relationships with others. Again, as I mentioned, it's not just a list of rules. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And it's not motivated principally by fear, but by love. So people sometimes say, well, people become are Christians because they don't want to go to hell. And it is true that sometimes in evangelistic meeting and people sort of generally believe in God, they generally believe in heaven and hell. And the preacher says, you need to trust in Jesus and turn to him if you're not going, or otherwise you're going to hell. And there are people who go forward in those meetings so they don't want to go to hell. But if their only reason for being a Christian is fear and not wanting to go to hell, they may not be a Christian at all. In fact, they may end up in hell. The reason is that salvation is basically trusting God. So it was, it was emphasized this morning, that, yesterday, that, that what heaven is basically a relationship. And being a Christian is basically a trust relationship with Jesus and with God. If we trust him, we will love him. And it's out of that trust relationship that this union is built. If it's simply I'm buying fire insurance, and I think, okay, now I'm saved, I'm all fine, because after I prayed the right pair, my, so the fire insurance is filled out. Actually, it's not all clear that you are a Christian. Because if you don't have any love for God, you're not really trusting Him, and your only motivation for being a Christian is fear, that's probably, it's, that may not work for you. <laughs> Just a little, a little uh, warning there. Secular Western ethics, as I mentioned, deletes God, but keeps love your neighbors yourself. Now, it doesn't quite keep it exactly that way, because very few non-Christians will say you have to love other people as much as you love yourself. But there is the idea, if you love your neighbors yourself, that person's welfare has to be of same worth as your welfare. And when you're asking ethical questions, from a Western perspective, you don't give a lot of weight to your own welfare and a little bit of weight to the welfare of others. If you're thinking ethically from a Western perspective, you have to consider everyone's welfare equally. And everyone's welfare is, 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 is of great importance. So it holds as a fundamental moral principle that all human persons are of great and equal worth as persons and need to be treated accordingly. Very close to the love your neighbor as yourself. 
By the way, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is similar to this. If you're going to do unto others as you want them to do to you, you wouldn't hold that principle if you thought that their, their welfare was worth less than yours. For a person whose welfare is worth less than yours, it's not the case that you should do to them as they want, if you want them to do to you, because that's treating you as in a position of equality. The principle is so strong in the West that it is now typically part of what moral and ethical actually mean. So, for instance, suppose a person says, I have my ethics. It involves looking out for myself and my friends and the people in my community. I think a person can rightly respond, given what uh, moral claims mean in English. A person can rightly respond, that may be your values, but they're not moral values. A moral ethical outlook cannot privilege some people over others. It needs to consider equally the welfare of everyone. And I think that is so built into moral claims that actually is part of what is meant when one makes a moral claim. So if a person says my morality is looking out for myself and people around me, that may be your values, but that's not a moral perspective. But that's not true of most other cultures. Uh, the value of other persons can depend on a variety of things. In some cultures, like in China, older people have greater value than younger people. At the time of Jesus, children had less value than adults. Uh, many cultures, men have more value than women. It might be your ancestry in the caste system in India. If you're from this, from this, this caste, born in this, this family, you have more value. It might be your social class gives you more value. It might be your appearance, or it might be the religion you have. In Islam, there's oftentimes a difference in Islamic law, the consequence of an action if it's against a Christian or against a non-Muslim versus a Muslim. In almost all Sharia law, if a Muslim kills a non-Muslim, it's not capital punishment. If they kill a Muslim, it's capital punishment. That seems to imply, my thinking about, that the non-Muslim has less value <laughs> than the, the Muslim has. It may have to do with your ethnicity, your wealth, or your abilities. There's just lots and lots of ways within which cultures don't say everyone has equal great worth simply as, as, as a person. So what we take as being, well, that's what ethics is about. That's not what other cultures say ethics is about. So to avo avoid a cultural relativism, how do we know that we're right and they're wrong? <laughs> that our way of looking at it is the right way of looking at it. Uh, inequalities, by the way, in other cultures are believed to be part of the moral order. The part of the moral order is that you have difference in caste, or you, part of the moral order is there's a difference between men and women, and you simply need to recognize there are inequalities in the moral order itself. Uh, so I mentioned earlier the question, if you take away the latter of the Christian faith that undergirds Western secular ethics, can you maintain that? And I think it's quite problematic. Let me just give a couple examples of which that is being eroded. Uh, most women in the United States now who know that their child before it's born is Down syndrome will have the child aborted. Uh, but if the baby is born, then suddenly the baby is of great worth in taking the baby's life as murder. But from a secular standpoint, why is it we should penalize a woman who just didn't know that the baby was Down syndrome and the baby comes out, why is it that we shouldn't be able to terminate that life at that point, whereas a couple days earlier, if the baby hadn't come out of the womb first, then, it'd be, then it's okay to terminate that life. And the idea is, well, a Down syndrome person isn't worth as much 
as a person of normal abilities. You get the same thing in, in uh, uh, euthanasia. Part of what makes euthanasia attractive is say, well, given this person no longer has the abilities they had before, their life is worth less. And if their life is worth less, then ending their life is quite understandable. So the actual worth of a human being is rated in terms of what they're able to accomplish. Should we have this person's life be terminated? Well, their life isn't worth a whole lot, so yes. So this idea of great worth of simply being a person is eroded. And by the way, it makes a difference uh, if you have a family member who has Alzheimer's and it's advancing as becoming quite severe. If you think that's only a partial person, this isn't the person I know, it's just a remnant of it, it's much easier for you to say, okay, end the life. But if in fact you believe there's still a person created in the image of God and their soul, the very core of who they are, is still the same person, their great worth, then you need to love and care for that person despite the great de decrease in the mental abilities that they have. It's not the case that Western Christian ethics will suddenly disappear if the Christian faith gets removed. Uh, it, it'll stick around for a while, but it'll gradually be eroding and you find pressures on that. Given the huge costs of caring for people that are born with significant liabilities or disabilities, uh, you know, why is it that we shouldn't just sort of say, we, we, we'll end the, end the person's life and your life will be simpler as a parent. You don't have to endure all this hardship, all this struggle, all this, all this, all this care. And we will, we will sort of say, oh, we recognize how, how traumatic this is for you, but we'll support you in it. So it's very easy for me to imagine a secular sort of rationale for terminating the life of people that don't have the full abilities that other people have. Now, the conventions of meaning in English, I'll just to underscore this, anyone making an ethical claim must believe that it is correct independent of what an individual or group may think about it. The reason why I emphasize this is there's a lot of people today who will say actually ethics is culturally relative. They'll embrace a moral relativism, but think they can embrace a moral relativism and still have ethical values. But actually that doesn't work given the meaning of ethical claims. It's also the case in English that when you make an ethical claim, it's assumed there's an obligation. If you know what is right and what's wrong, there's an obligation to do what's right and to avoid what's doing what's wrong. You may ignore it, but nonetheless, there's an obligation. There's an obliging force which comes from uh, something being morally right and wrong. And where does that come from? Now, I won't say anything about the second, but I will say something about the first. If someone says it's morally wrong for women to be treated as inferior to men, as lots of atheists would say these days, they cannot believe that it's morally okay in cultures that think it's okay. But if they really think it's okay, morally, in cultures where they think it's okay, then they don't have a moral conviction about it. They have a cultural conviction about it. It's something our cultural embraces, but if they don't think, if they think it's okay in other cultures not to treat women equally with men, then they don't really have a moral conviction about it. So the distinction between a cultural conviction and a moral conviction, I think, is, is, is a vital one. And if you're a cultural relativist, you've lost the moral ethical conviction that's, that's there. Uh, so, for instance, if, if uh, take, take China and uh, the, the, the tradition in China, the older people you respect and you have a respect for, you, you, you treat, them, uh, treat them well because they're older people. Now, how is the Chinese may think about that? It's possible the Chinese person could say, well, that's just simply our culture. And I'm proud to be Chinese, and part of being Chinese is to have this, this, this respect for, for one's elders. But it's not something other cultures need to embrace, but this is something I'm going to do because I'm Chinese, and this is the Chinese way of doing it. Now, Chinese may think that, 
But if it's for them an ethical conviction, then they would say, okay, other cultures, if they were in fact to treat elders better, their society would run more smoothly and better, the society would be better off if in fact they embraced our values than simply ignoring our values or treating older people as having no greater worth than, than others. So actually, even in a culture that doesn't use ethics in the same way we use it, nonetheless, there's this idea of ethics as being independent of what their culture thinks about it. So it seems to me you can make a distinction between cultural values and ethical values. And if you think that something you embrace is simply a cultural value, it is not an ethical value. It's only an ethical value if you think this is the way things ought to be done. Not simply for me or for uh, people who agree with me, but for people who don't agree with me and for cultures that hold the different values. Also, if someone changes their mind about an ethical issue, they don't say morality has changed. <laughs> no, in moral language, if you say that you were wrong, it means that you were think you're thinking about it before was mistaken. Morality hasn't changed, but you have a better, clearer understanding, so now you're convinced that this is what is morally right and wrong, so again, it's independent even of the speaker. And that's part of what we mean when we make moral claims as part of the very meaning of ethical, of eth ethical claims. Now, there's an enigma for the materialist. Coming back to Professor, how does an atheist develop a foundation for it? The basic problem is as follows. The materialist believes that all that is real is physical. Therefore, the only reality values can have, including ethical values, is that people or animals value what they do. There's no values out in the world. And I myself think that values are related to human welfare and God's understanding of human welfare. But from an atheist standpoint, there are no values at all other than what people value. There's no, not, nothing like God. Therefore, when people differ on fundamental values, there's no independent, uh, nothing independent of those values so as to establish that one is correct and the other not. So if people differ on, say, derivative values, suppose they hold the same core values but have differences on derivative values, it might be that one person can come to the other person and say, hey, look, we agree on this fundamental value. Think about this fundamental value. It implies this, which, which is contrary to what you hold, and you might persuade the person you're right. I need to change the secondary value. But if people differ in fundamental values, then it doesn't seem as though there's any way in which you can say one person is right and the other person is wrong. If people believe there's a fundamental value difference between women and men, uh, just because we think that men and women are equal, that doesn't mean that, they're, that I'm right and they're wrong. Because after all, values are just simply what people value. Uh, so the implication seems to be moral relativism, either individual or social. But this conflicts with the meaning of English uh, moral claims. And most atheists, however, do make some moral claims that they believe are correct, correct, even though others don't agree with them. Uh, if you meet an atheist who really is a consistent moral relativist, they're probably not a very nice person to be around. <laughs> Most atheists who are really decent people really do have moral convictions. The question, are those just suspended in the air and they're sort of in conflict and unjustified by their worldview? Uh, that's a serious problem. As I said at the beginning, if you talk to someone who's a materialist who believes in nothing but the physical world, it's very, very difficult to establish a foundation to be able to say these values are right and these values are wrong. And the person can be strongly motivated to consider the Christian faith because after all, there's a grounding within which your faith can be backed up and substantiated. Now, one approach, which is, I think, sort of close to getting on the right track in secular ethics is a, is a 
a kind of ethics called ideal observer ethics. So ideal observer ethics says what, what is right and wrong is not simply what I want or what I think is best or what I think would be best for, best for society, but it's what, it's what an ideal observer is think is best. So you have two people in two different cultures that have fundamentally different values. And there's no way of being able to give arguments to I'm right and you're wrong or vice versa. But if they buy into ideal observer ethics, they say, well, if there were an ideal observer who knew all the facts, knew all the consequences of our actions, and knew what it's like to live in this culture or live in that culture, if this ideal observer would say, actually, it's better to live in this culture than that culture, that's what would be right and wrong. Now, what's helpful about that is a person can make an ethical claim and it's not meaningless, even though they don't know if they're right or wrong. <laughs> it gives some sort of grounding of the idea that you, you might be right, the other person might be right, but at the same time, it doesn't tell you who is right. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't show that one position is right or the other, other person is not. What's interesting to me is that what they're looking for is really God. And I, God is the ideal observer. He's the one who knows us. He knows us personally. He knows what's in our welfare, what, what is good for us and what is not good for us. And God's commands are not just simply arbitrary hoops for us to jump through. <laughs> he gave commands to us because he knows what, in fact, will help us to flourish as people. And God knows that if we're in right relationship with him, that really is going to enable us to flourish. Now, most atheists think they can flourish quite fine without, without, without relationship with God. But God knows that, in fact, we're created to be in a relationship with God. And only in a relationship with God will we really discover ourselves and discover the fullness of life that God has for us. So God is the ideal observer, and we can trust him as the ideal observer when it comes to the convictions we have about what's morally, morally right and wrong. So let me stop at that point. We have about eight minutes left. If you need a couple minutes before noon to take off and pick up your kids, uh, that's fine. But uh, questions in response to this?